Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And many people have heard conspiracy theories around the 5G mobile network rollout and its effect on health. And our next guest's recent analysis of over 500 submissions into a parliamentary committee on the launch of 5G found a significant number made false claims. On one hand, I suppose that's to be expected. Not all submissions are going to be fact-checked. But uh, Dr Michael Jensen, Senior Research Fellow for the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis, thinks that the issue is serious enough um, that we should be wary of um, misinformation co-opting public processes and it's really great to have Michael with us on the phone. Uh, Welcome to Triple R, Michael. Good morning. And I I suppose for those who mightn't have heard the various debunked claims around 5G, what are the main ones that are out there at the moment? Uh, Well, a couple uh, prominent ones out there today uh, include generic claims about uh, the radiation that 5G uses uniquely producing cancer, as well as a more novel one uh, suggesting that 5G towers have the ability to spread the coronavirus. And so where do some of these ideas come from? Well, you find a lot of them uh, scattered around the Internet in various sketchy or dodgy uh, 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 Facebook groups, uh, some areas of Reddit, uh, some of the, you know, like 4chan or 8chan uh, types of sites. Um, and, and ultimately, uh, a lot of these claims come on blogs that have uh, some rather unusual connections to uh, foreign governments. And so we know that some of these ideas are out there, and I mean, I see them pop up from time to time on my social media feed, but you write um, in an article for The Conversation that it's not necessarily common for parliamentary inquiries to need to rebut conspiracy theories or really far-fetched claims such as these. So is this a really rare thing for these types of ideas to, to pop up in parliamentary um, submissions processes? In my experience, it is. Uh, The function of the parliamentary submissions process is to get information from people across the society so the government can better uh, calibrate and tailor uh, public policy. Uh, However, if you put them in a situation where essentially they have to offer a rebuttal to people who are sending in submissions, then this is not an information gathering process for uh, the parliament, but puts them in a situation where essentially you could see there's increased transaction costs where they have to go that extra step to to defend government policy. Yeah, and I suppose um, it's an interesting situation, isn't it? Because on one hand, if parliamentarians uh, know what is debunked, then... Um, you know, does it matter if inaccurate submissions are made? But on the flip side, if they are made and people in, in good faith think and are concerned about these issues, if a parliamentary process ignores their submission, is that also um, a kind of a risk for the process? 
Well, I, I think you, so. In this case, um, there was a situation where they they did respond. So I guess they weren't ignoring uh, those submissions. Um, I, I'd hope that uh, through processes outside of the submission process, uh, the government and other actors in society were able to effectively communicate uh, the, this information about the safety of 5G and so forth. Uh, and, and I say that as somebody who's a consumer of this information, I'm not an expert on, on ionizing versus non-ionizing radiation and so forth. Uh, but uh, that would seem to be something somewhat outside the role of a parliamentary submission process, which is primarily about getting information from the society rather than having to say, this is all nonsense. And so tell us about your methodology as part of this research. How did you set about, um, I guess, uh, tracking and, and collating the parliamentary submissions and tracing them to their source, if that was indeed possible? So uh, what I did was um, I... Uh I, I study uh, online uh, political communication and conspiracy theories, and uh, I was reading some of the submissions after I'd seen the, the, the headlines about the report, and the language in those submissions reminded me a lot of language I'd seen on various conspiracy sites on Facebook. And so what I did was I downloaded all 530-some uh, submissions that were publicly accessible, and I put them into a computer. And and I ran a program that's similar to uh, what we'd use uh, for plagiarism detection. That is, it looks for like similarities in words and uh, in, in phrases between different documents. And I, I categorized, uh, put put all the, the conspiracy posts about 5G into one set of documents, and then all the submissions as individual sets of other documents, and compared them to see how much there was an overlap in terms of the terminology between those two sets of, of, of documents. And that's how I was able to see there were, you know, about 35, 38 of them uh, were at least 50% word for word what I found in sites like QAnon, conspiracy places. And did you uh, manage to uncover it all, whether there was any directive for people to make submissions to this parliamentary process? Or based on your research, do you rather think that this kind of came out of a, a natural evolution as people engaged with these sorts of ideas and circulated them online? My suspicion is it came more out of a natural evolution of people who consume information from conspiracy sites that they, they truly become concerned about these things. Uh, on the other hand, um, I don't think that this is an accident. Uh, historically speaking, uh, foreign governments have sometimes used uh, information operations like this to uh, help sabotage the adoption and development of new technologies if they perceive themselves to be at a disadvantage. And so as a result, you know, if, if, if a foreign country thought that they might not have as developed a 5G system, and there's been a lot of research suggesting that, for example, if Australia developed one, it would increase the GDP substantially per capita, uh, then uh, this could be a means by which they could uh, reduce the capacity for, for Australia to develop these technologies if you have people going around sabotaging towers and so forth. 
Yeah, um, Dr. Michael Jensen's with us. He's written about a 5G misinformation spreading within government institutions. You might have seen um, some of the conspiracy theories online. And I mean, do we know, uh, Michael, what works to uh, debunk uh, particularly health concerns? I, I suppose in the kind of pandemic environment we're in at the moment, accurate health uh, information is vital. Uh, do we do we know what works to, I suppose, update people on what the latest advice is? Well, one thing that helps is certainly clear messaging across all levels of government and health authorities. Um, so it has to be clear and consistent. Uh, second, it also helps if when you have <clears throat> segments of the population that don't necessarily uh, accept the messaging of the government, that you have other authority figures within those communities that will articulate those messages to their communities. And that can also help increase the acceptance of, of information that otherwise might not be trusted. And what about the responsibility of social media companies and so on? I mean, we've heard that Twitter has made efforts to shut down accounts linked to uh, QAnon. Is there a really significant role they can play in this sort of space? Because I guess the challenge is that if people have other, other mechanism, mechanisms of, these, uh, of communication, then these theories can still flourish outside of that. Um, that's that's true. So uh, one thing that I think that's important is uh, there needs to be a societal discussion about the role of social media companies in uh, protecting uh, the the information spaces that that people are are relying on to form opinions and and make decisions about what actions they're going to take. Now, on the one hand, uh, we need to be concerned in a democracy about censorship. Uh, that that you know certainly you know ideas that were unpopular at one point in time or believed to be you know utterly false uh, later on uh, could could end up being you know valid legitimate positions for people to, to hold um, on the other hand <clears throat> um, we, we also need to, to ask well what is uh, uh, free speech good for because once you start to answer that question why is it that we need to protect free speech in a society uh, then you can start to see bases upon which certain kinds of speech can actually undermine those goals. So if we want a, a society that's well-governed, that people can participate effectively, uh, we want to be careful about people who are speaking under false pretenses, who are misleading people, intentionally deceiving them about who they are or about the information that they're providing. And uh, I'd also suggest that you know we have to ask seriously why would anybody look to Facebook or YouTube videos to get health advice rather than looking to medical professionals? Yeah, and, and I guess it goes to that um, idea of the importance of people existing within those sort of friendship networks playing a role as well in, in attempting to dispel some of these ideas. Uh, I mean, you look at this issue very closely and, and, and track conspiracy theories on the internet. What are your kind of, um, I guess, most significant concerns about the tangible implications of some of this stuff doing the rounds? Well, uh, a number of things. One, um, I think, you know, as you, as you point out, during a pandemic, um, it can be uh, enormously disastrous because we have to have uh, people understand clearly the health risks and the reasonable preventive measures that are being communicated by multiple levels of government. And people have to take action on that to the extent that that process gets hijacked by conspiracy theories. 
that raises uh, significant problems for the rest of society because all of us suffer from that. It's not just a few people getting sick because of poor choices they made. It's because they get everybody else sick. It prevents us from being able to, to us from being able to turn the corner on the the, the COVID nineteen virus. Yeah, it's a really significant issue for our times and um, and research such as you have conducted helps us understand it all the better. Michael, thanks so much for joining us um, today on Triple R. My pleasure. It's Dr. Michael Jensen, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis at the University of Canberra, talking all about his research on 5G misinformation um, spreading to government institutions or at least to those submission processes as part of government inquiries. And you can read all about his research on the conversation. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We've talked many times um, with Associate Professor Dave Nichols about the style of housing in Melbourne and how it is evolving. He's senior lecturer in urban planning over at the University of Melbourne. And this is because we've become a more dense city, but um, we've also sprawling. We've um, extended the urban growth boundary here many times over the years too, uh, which uh, means that Dave, this kind of um, a contradiction there. We're more dense and we're more sprawling at the same time, which um, is a great place maybe to start this conversation about the downside of density. Yeah. Hi. How's it going? Um, yes, the downside of density is, I mean, it's something that I think we in Australia have had been having this discussion in various ways, or Australians have been having this discussion in various ways for centuries because it's so often part of the uh, you know the Australian story is to own your uh, own distinct separate house on a on a block of land, and that is of course what has attracted um, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. I don't know how many people to to this country. It's like you can you can actually buy a buy a block of land and live on it. And of course, uh, the way that Australia's cities have developed has been you know with those kinds of principles of um you know uh, i think um i'm not sure if he exactly used this term but graham davison was known for coming up with this this idea of like the sanitary impulse to to city development where um people would live separate from each other um with greenery around them and so on and part of that was it wasn't the stinky dirty messy slum central city that you know, uh, many people were used to, for instance, obviously in the, the centre of London from like the 17th, uh, 17th century onwards. So, so Australia has has typically offered that kind of you know a reprieve from that kind of disgusting scenario of the of the disease ridden city, and that's what our suburbs are based on that kind of idea. And there's they come from a time, you know, the the core notion of the suburbs comes from a time when. Really, the only the only way that you could be sure that you, or you could be rel- reasonably sure that you stay away from disease, is by being sort of inserted into nature. So, so we've we've got we got to that point, and we we lived sort of happily and perhaps foolishly for for centuries in this country, and then it's in the last twenty or thirty years, people there's been this really concerted and somewhat successful drive to get people. Um, out of that notion and into apartments and denser, what we tend to call 
uh, European-style dense living in this uh, in in our in our big cities in this country. And so, how do we we kind of make sense of that in light of the hard lockdown on those um, public housing towers in North Melbourne and, and Flemington recently? I mean, in some ways, there's this kind of gentrifying push towards people living in cities and seeing that as a great lifestyle. But also, through that um, incident, I suppose we saw that these uh, aging towers aren't necessarily in the in the case of the pandemic, for example, fit for keeping people safe in some respects. Isn't it? It's amazing, Gillan. I know. And it, this has been... But then at the same time, think of the way that people talk about Docklands all the time. Mm. I think unfairly. But people talk about Docklands all the time as like the slums of the future. And people in the 70s, 60s and 70s, when those high-rise buildings were being built for public housing around Melbourne, people were saying, well, they're just, you know, vertical slums. So... Um, you know they're not they're not a solution, uh, and that, and that is partly that just that kind of the stigma around people living so closely together. Um, how do we look at the the lockdown of the Kensington Towers, the Debney Park Towers? That's a that's a great question, and I think one question would be why were those particular towers singled out? And I have seen like I don't know if you I don't know if you've heard of conspiracy theories on the internet. Um, but, <laughs> I've um, seen a couple. <laughs> I've I've seen some stuff where people are saying, yeah, the the state government was wanted to, you know, sell that that, that land off. So of course they're going to single out the the Kensington Towers as a as a hotbed of uh, disease because you know they'll do anything to um, to find ways to declare them you know unfit for human habitation because they want the land. I don't I don't really understand why that land would be especially uh, attractive. Um, being placed where it is, you know, right next to the to CityLink and and so on. But whatever, that's a that's a kind of a a thought bubble that's floating around. That there's actually a, an ulterior motive for declaring those those places, um, you know, uh, diseased and and. And bad. I suppose um, it's that sense of, um, you know, if you get a choice between stuff up and conspiracy, perhaps stuff up is the is the place <laughs> to start. But I mean, what was the thinking behind um, high rise development, particularly those ones when they were built? Dave, my 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 thinking has always been that having gardens all around dense living is actually something that urban planners might have thought was a positive way to live. Well, many still do. I mean, it's that that the, the Irony or the strange element of it is that it's it's perfectly acceptable for ultra expensive uh, developments to to incorporate that kind of design principle, but it's not good for uh, very poor people, and I'm never quite sure why. So I don't I don't want to call them very poor people. That's I'm I'm kind of I'm appropriating uh, other people's thinking, but. Um, Yes, the issue was most definitely supposedly based on Le Corbusian uh, ideas of, you know, the, the, the apartment as a machine for living in, the, the notion that you, you live a very efficient life in your house, but you have access to massive amounts of open space. And those, those Debney Park places, once again, they don't really have massive amounts of open space, but some, like Atherton Gardens, I know the people at Atherton Gardens in Fitzroy are very... Um, Fond of, or many people there are fond of their environment in in Fitzroy, and they they enjoy the open space aspect of it. So there's different ways of looking at that. 
it was definitely the notion of if you stack everyone up high, then you you had a lot of, of extra space. But even in the 60s and 70s, there were people... Look, my grandparents lived in a, a block of, uh, I guess, terrace, no, sort of units in Clifton Hill, which were built in the early 70s, entirely to demonstrate that you could have the same kind of density in two-storey buildings with little gardens and, uh, you know, everyone close together, but still um, discrete housing, not not stacked up uh, as you could in, you know, major housing commission um, developments. And if we, if we move to just sort of broader density, um, Dave, I mean, we've spoken with you many times around uh, sort of the plan for Melbourne, I guess, where uh, more dense living along transport, public transport corridors has been <coughs> encouraged uh, and, you know, throughout yeah. most parts of the city. Clearly, public transport is a challenge at the moment. Many people opting not to use it. And I suppose people don't really need to if they're working from home and the like. Do you think mm. we'll have a rethink around the kinds of density that Melbourne will chase um, because of the pandemic or really, um, you know, it's maybe too early to say, I guess? In some ways it's too early to say, but I will say, sorry, I found it very interesting to look at density um, plans or proposals or, or studies from the last 10 years in Melbourne where people are saying, oh, you only need to put like one or two storeys along buildings, uh, sorry, on buildings along uh select tram routes and and then you solve density problems in a, in a massive way and you also contribute to street buzz, you know, the, 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 the hubbub and the excitement of the street. And that is, of course, what we do not want right now. We don't want a lot of people around us when we're walking in the street. So nevertheless, we, we're going to assume, let us, let us proceed with the expectation that we are eventually not going to be living in pandemic situation uh, that's surely going to sort itself out one way or the other um, hopefully in a fairly happy way uh, then I guess we'll come back to that kind of uh, understanding that, that that's a good thing to have density on public public transport routes and uh, and a lot of people in the street. Speaking with Associate Professor Dave Nichols, he's a Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne and joins us monthly on the show to talk all things urban planning. And I guess in terms of public housing, Dave, I mean, you've spoken about how the development of these tower blocks, as you know, we see in North Melbourne, Flemington and, and Fitzroy and the like, reflected a particular mode of thinking around apartment living and also the stigma that was attached to kind of high-density living in the cities um, in sort of decades past. How do you see the, uh, I guess, evolution of public housing at this point in time? I mean, obviously there's calls for, for more public housing around the country and in this state in particular. What types of dwellings um, are, are governments pursuing currently? I don't know if any listeners, some will surely be aware of the public housing in North Melbourne, that's in Curzon Street, that's just been demolished like this week. Uh, they finally bulldozed a whole lot of stuff in uh, in a sort of triangular block there that was the showcase for the Housing Commission from the, like, 1950s. Uh, and so that's gone with the understanding that there's going to be, I, I believe, more units built in its place, that they will be more kind of robust and um, 
green, I guess, and also that they will... One of the problems that people have perceived with public housing is that it was generally predicated on the notion of uh, family homes, although there was some... And they used to call them Darby and Joan flats. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure where that term comes from, but that was like for older people, like, you know, so empty nesters, I suppose, but probably married couples. Uh, so that there's now going to be more um, acknowledgement or provision for people with uh, very different styles of living arrangements. So, But the future of public housing, broadly speaking, is horrible. I mean, there's there's very little being built. Uh, government in the last 20 years, state governments have tended to push the responsibility onto non-government organisations who they will fund a little bit uh, but and support, but they will basically not, not take on that role. The Housing Commission, you know, I mean, really did, did itself in in the 80s um, and... Has been there have been successive bodies since that time who have taken on the running of public housing, you know, the existing public housing stock. Some of it has been sold off, as you know. Everyone will remember the, the Kensington situation where a whole lot was sold off, some of it for private developments. Ditto Carlton more recently. Uh, some of those old walk-ups were demolished and new housing for private sale has been uh, sold. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a sad story. And in this, the famous situation is that if you're on a public housing waiting list, uh, I don't even actually even know if this is still true, but it was true a while ago that, you know, if you're on a public housing waiting list, they say, well, we can get you into a regional public housing estate tomorrow uh, and you'll be far away from Melbourne itself, but you will have a house. Or you can wait for a decade or more for something in the city. Yeah, it's really confronting stuff. And um, I mean, I suppose the the stories that came um, to our attention over the past um, few weeks uh, and the hope and resilience that we've heard and also the, the dire need for attention in this area, fingers crossed that is being heard and um, and we see, uh, you know, a rethink on how we do housing in Melbourne. We're out of time, though, this morning, oh. Dave. Um, I, was just, I was just about to say something interesting. Oh, what? Oh. No, no, I wasn't really. <laughs> <laughs> um, I should have just left that hang and just cut you off and people would be left waiting till next month to try and hear what that was. Um, thanks so much for joining us and we'll cut, yeah, we'll cut you again. Much. next. Thanks, oh, next Dave. month, hey, I'm just letting you know, Dave, next month will be Radiothon. So, um, uh, yeah, we'll get you in for that. We will indeed. So, um, yeah, looking uh, forward to I'd it. I'd love that. Yeah, Wonderful. awesome. Okay. Cool. All right. Thanks, um, Dave. Catch you soon. Uh, Dave Nichols, uh, you can find him over at the University of Melbourne. He's senior lecturer in urban planning over there. He's an associate professor, joins us monthly. And yes, we'll be part of our Radiothon show. <laughs> we should it's coming in. up quick, isn't it? I know. Jeez. We're going to get on to that. Um, <laughs> it's just like one day sort of blends into the next, but um, very much looking forward to the party that is Triple R um, coming up in August. Uh, so, yeah, I'm sure it's you'll gonna start to It's going to be a big party on the airwaves, it. isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be different. But what I what I love about Triple R and being a broadcaster here is that we can innovate, and we're hearing that all over the place. And I know that um, that people listening, I'm one of the audience too, um, are sort of loving hearing how people are doing it. So yeah, we'll be doing that again through Radiothon. Triple.
last week that JobKeeper is going to stay with us for longer. JobSeeker will um, stay topped up for longer, but the rates will step down. And at the moment, roughly three and a half million people are receiving wage subsidy payments via their workplaces. But how many will go back onto employer paid wages and how many will end up on unemployment benefits is still an open question. It's an uncertain time and big policy decisions are having to be made every day, which is why we've asked Emma Dawson to come back and join us. Uh, She's Exec Director of Per Capita and it's great to have you with us, Emma. Welcome. Thanks. Good to be here again. And no matter where we start this conversation, Emma, the the numbers are confronting. So maybe we can just start with JobSeeker and the top-up payment that's in place at the moment. How is that going to change going by the government? And when do you think the the government's going to make uh, the next decision about the ongoing base rate for that unemployment benefit? Uh, yeah, well, it's a very live and pertinent question given the unemployment rate. And I, I think, you know, the first thing to note is that the official unemployment rate's uh, about 7.5%, but if you factor in all the people that have just dropped out of the labour market altogether, so they've stopped looking for work at the moment, uh, and also those that are underemployed, so they've had their hours cut or don't have enough hours of work, um, we've got something like 13 applicants for every job at the moment. Um, and there was um, uh, some stats out on the weekend uh, saying that recruiters have shown that people have a 1 in 275 chance of getting a white collar job at the moment. So we're facing um, a labour market that is probably the worst it's been in 100 years. Uh, We haven't seen levels of unemployment like this since the Great Depression. Um, So bad news to start with. Now job seeker of course, um, was originally boosted by $550 a fortnight. Uh, last week, the government dropped that back to 250 a fortnight with the proviso that people could earn the additional 300 that they've taken away um, from any work without having their benefits cut further. Now, that's probably of little comfort to people in the labour market, given it's going to be very unlikely that those hours will be available to the majority of people. Um, before this crisis hit, of course, there was a long campaign to raise the rate of what was their new start, and advocates were calling for $75 a week and then and then $95 a week at the beginning of this year. So why is $125 a week not a good thing? Um, now, it's, it's more than people were asking for before the crisis. Look, I think if we were in the old labour market, $125 a week would be acceptable um, because the idea of uh, unemployment benefit, of course, is that it's meant to be a temporary payment while you look for work. And if it's genuinely a temporary payment, then um, having it set below the rate of the minimum wage is okay um, because there needs to be, of course, some incentive to to find a job. Um, But even before the crisis, for far too many people, it wasn't a temporary payment. And I'm talking about people like single mothers, um, single parents, people that have caring responsibilities or people with disabilities that were shoved onto New Start rather than the disability support payment. There are a lot more people now, of course, for whom this is not going to be a temporary situation. So asking them to live considerably below the poverty line when there are no jobs available um, is going to put a lot of people into poverty. It's going to mean um, families that have previously never experienced unemployment again and 
and are you know geared up to the hilt with big mortgages or even those that have high rents are going to find themselves unable to pay the cost of living of keeping a roof over their head um, and so I think um, you know we're going to need to take a serious look at how to support those people over the, over the coming months and years and, and the most disturbing thing is the government doesn't seem to have a plan to, to create jobs and we need jobs for people. And so this um, I mean reduced rate in terms of what people on JobSeeker have been able to access through the coronavirus supplement um, will be provided, um, as we mentioned, at $250 per fortnight. So this is up until the end of the year. Yet with the mm. JobKeeper scenario, um, it's slightly different. So obviously that's to, to designed to keep people in their jobs, but we've heard that the rate will be um, decreased from 1500 per fortnight to 1200 from the yep. 28th of September till the 3rd of Jan and then reduced slightly again up until the 28th of March. How important is it to have certainty around the job seeker supplement, given that, as you say, many people will be experiencing unemployment for the first time and and will be really unsure about what their employment prospects are for a fair while into the future, um, given that the situation is, you know, one in 270 odd people getting a job. It's going to be pretty tough for a while. That's right, Joanne. I think the certainty is really important and that the uncertainty that the government's creating with these kind of, you know, temporary um, short-term boosts and we'll tell you more in October and we'll tell you more at the end of the year um, is hugely damaging. It's damaging to people's um, mental health. It's damaging to their relationships. We know that, um, you know, the biggest cause of relationship breakdown is tension over money um, and insecurity in the home. Um, and it's also damaging to our recovery as nation because it really puts a, a big blow to consumer confidence. So people aren't going to spend money if they don't know where their income is going to be coming from in January or February or March. Um, they're going to save and they're not going to spend. And that's going to mean that it's going to take a lot longer for small businesses to get back on their feet for people to go out and start you know, eating at cafes again when they're allowed to. Um, so it's, it's just really, um, it, it's unwise on a number of fronts to keep people hanging and not give them certainty over um, I think, you know, the idea that uh, that job seeker could go back to pre-recession, pre-depression, really new start levels um, around Christmas is just terrifying for people because we know that the big expenses come at that time of year. Even if you have a very frugal Christmas, um, you're hit with all kinds of end of year expenses, and it's going to be pretty scary not knowing uh, what your income's going to be and whether or not you're going to go back to living on forty dollars a day after Christmas. Yeah, and uh, I suppose talking about uncertainty, I suppose we're um, needing to mentally prepare in Melbourne for the uncertainty of when our uh, lockdown um, will ease up and we're in quite a different situation to pretty much everywhere else in the country and many cities around the world as well. Uh, How, I mean, I I think the national approach being taken by the government's pretty clear. We are, you know, one country, one national economy. Is, Is it the right call to have the kind of job seeker, job keeper apply in that national way? Or do you think we'll start to see more more targeted uh, approaches, you know, by sector yeah. or by city um, taking Look, into account the different scenarios? 
It's pretty difficult for federal government money to be applied differently according to um, residential status or where people live. It's, it's not impossible, but um, it's tricky both politically and practically. I think that it's, it's likely to stay the same way across the country and it'll be up to state governments to um, you know, put in place other, other bits of compensation depending on their particular circumstances. Uh, as we saw with you know, Treasurer Tim Pallas making some announcements around that in Victoria last week. Um, but, you know, the truth is we don't know. We don't know how long it's going to be in Victoria. We don't know whether it's going to take off again in New South Wales or other states. Um, closed borders seem to be holding off, you know, big surges in other parts of the country. But if we look at what's actually driven this um, new outbreak in Victoria, it's not been, you know, due to one or two people doing the wrong thing, as, as people like to say. It's due to the fact that we have a high level of um, service industries. Our economy is very reliant on services here. And it's those service workers um, that are in badly paid, insecure jobs with no sick leave um, that have been hit with this virus and taken it back to their families. And so um, the more that that exists in a region, the more likely we are to see outbreaks. And I think the, the federal government's going to probably stick to one national um, rate unless perhaps National Cabinet can convince them otherwise. We're speaking with Emma Dawson, Executive Director at Per Capita, all about, I guess, um, the government's recent announcements in relation to JobKeeper and JobSeeker and the many challenges that lay ahead in relation to Australia's economic and social recovery as we move through this pandemic. And I guess there has been, through the National Cabinet, cabinet process and also at the federal level too, an air of bipartisanship throughout um, the past few months. We've heard Jim Chalmers from the um, ALP say that um, they're kind of approaches that they'll agree where they can and disagree where they must. But also more broadly, there's been um, murmurings of a kind of paradigm shift in economic orthodoxy. There's ideas such as modern monetary theory that are getting um, quite a lot of airing at the moment as well. And, and recently we heard Josh Frydenberg invoke Thatcher and Reagan in terms of the type of model that he is envisioning um, Sorry for uh, the type of gov- uh, package the government is moving forward with. I guess going sort of big picture for you, for a moment, do you think there is a real um, kind of shift at play here in terms of the way that we view the, the national economy and the you know national budget not being like a household budget? Because that really fundamentally comes down to the question of how much public spending can be justified to move the country yeah. forward and ensure um, you know vast numbers of people don't fall into poverty. Yeah. Yeah, look, it's, it's been fascinating to see um, the commentary over the last few days coming from the government. I think, you know, Matthias Cormann saying, well, what is it? what was the alternative but to spend? Um, and pretty breathtaking hypocrisy there, given the last 12 years they have beaten up on Labor's um, debt and deficit from the GFC, and now they're doing exactly the same thing. And there was no alternative back in tw- 2008-9 either. Um, but I don't think, and I think um, the Treasurer's revelation that he's going to look to Reagan and Thatcher for how to climb out of this crisis indicates that there hasn't really been a shift in thinking within the party of government. Um, they've spent because they've had no choice, as, as Cormann said. Um, but as soon as they can, they are going to return to a fairly... Um, I mean, Reaganomics, Thatcher economics were the very height of neoliberalism, of you know, deregulating, um, flashing 
jobs slashing the public sector um, and, his, and they're talking about you know addressing this through more flexible work um, deregulation uh, and so that would seem to indicate a return to their old way of thinking. But, but I, I guess we've, sorry to buddy, but we've also mm. seen kind of the, the whole idea of balancing the budget and, and returning mm. to surplus catch on not necessarily just in coalition circles but also the yeah. ALP has been part of that sort of conversation. Oh yeah, it's been it's been a surplus fetish has been um, has taken hold of both sides of politics over recent years, and you know to a, to an extent that's a function of it having been embedded in the community in the mindset of the community um, that that a balanced budget is a, an important thing. When in actual fact it's not. We've talked about this before. A balanced economy is the important thing, um, and what modern monetary theory is for all its um, you know hype at the moment is really just a, a return to the Keynesian theories of of deficit spending um, according to the cycle, although modern monetary theorists would say there's no need um, to balance the budget at all. They, um, and that's a bit of an extremist position, but Keynesian deficit spending, which was in place between the Second World War and the 1970s, um, saw but, uh, governments run bu- budget deficits when it was necessary to do so in order to keep the economy in balance. And I do hope that what is going to happen now with these conversations coming more out into the open is that the community community will start to recognise that budget surpluses are not an end in themselves and we should get rid of the budget surplus fetish um, and recognise that government investment, like government spending, is actually government investment in our economy and in our people and in our standards of living. Uh, If the community goes there, the politicians will follow. So, you know, we've got to focus on it on really um, making sure that this message gets through, that actually the government investing in our economy is really, really important, particularly during what, we, what is the biggest depression since the 1930s. We need to see that investment so that we can create jobs, um, get back to um, lift the private sector up so that they can start creating jobs as well um, and so that people can restore their standard of living and their way of life. So um, my hope, Dylan, is really that the people start to recognise that and then the surplus message about having budget surpluses um, will fall on fallow ground and if it does, then, then politicians won't be so obsessed with it. Emma, you mentioned that insecure work is a reason why why some people aren't self-isolating when they're feeling unwell or, uh, or after being tested for the coronavirus. Um, mm. I suppose, you know, that that is being picked up by journalists and politicians have been asked about that. And in the same kind of flip side of that, we're we're hearing about industrial relations reform ideas. Mm. And you just mentioned there, you know, the Thatcher and Reagan comments that uh, Treasurer um, Josh Frydenberg referred to over the weekend. What do you think is in store here? I mean, is there a sense that we might have some of those issues around insecure work dealt with as we start to rebuild the economy? Look, I hope so. Um, yeah, I really do. And I think the fact that the Victorian Premier explicitly said, you know, we need to have a conversation about this because insecure work is obviously driving this um, health crisis more than uh, anything else um, was a really good thing that that was recognised by our state leader. Um, and Jim Chalmers, who you referred to earlier, who's the shadow treasurer, um, was spoke quite strongly on Friday out against, um, against Frydenberg's suggestion that further labour labor market deregulation or what he called flexibility is an answer to this. Um, so I think this is where we'll start to see the divisions start to re-emerge between Labor and the government. Um, and there needs to be a recognition that, that flexibility has gone far too far in favour of the employer 
um, there are far too many people in Australia now that have never had a job with sick leave or paid leave of any kind. That is particularly true for people under 40, for women, um, for people from low economic back, socioeconomic backgrounds and for migrants and people from non-English speaking backgrounds. They're the people on the front lines of this pandemic all over the world. The same thing's playing out in America where it's black and Hispanic people that do service industry jobs that are um, catching the virus at much higher rates because they're not able to isolate. If they take a day off work, they don't get paid. And we've gone so far down this track um, over the last 30 years or so. Australia has some of the highest rates of casualisation and insecure work in the world. Um, and it really has exposed us to the effects of this virus. But it also uh, has been a big factor in young people's inability to get ahead, to um, to start to build a life, to get on the housing market. Uh, and it has created, you know, great levels of inequality in our society. And it's a it's a core feature of the kind of Reaganomics that the Treasurer now says he wants to go back to, um, to strip away those work conditions and, and treat workers as just another labour cost or just another cost to business, that labour is another cost to business that should be reduced as far as possible uh, in the pursuit of profit. Uh, and it's hugely damaging to society. And I do hope that uh, with Daniel Andrews comments in Jim Chalmers last week that we'll see Labor muscle up on this um, and the Greens as well have spoken uh, very well about this that we need to start restoring some of the balance of power to workers uh, because most of us are workers most of us rely on a weekly paycheck or the work that we can get as you know there are many more sole traders um, who effectively are contractors in our economy now so yeah a, a huge thing that we need to achieve coming out of this is a reversal of that massively insecure workforce that we've, we've seen emerge. Yeah, I mean, it, it does kind of seem odd, I suppose, in light of the, the the positive role we've seen government and sort of proper regulation and evidence-based policy play in these times as well to be talking about deregulation and red oh. tape and so on. Because um, if anything, the, the, the role of a, a proper functioning government, I think, has been really highlighted over the past few months for um, any any kind of positive elements in terms of our response so far. Um, yeah. uh, think tanks such as Per Capita I'm sure we're really busy in these times trying to come up with ways of, of moving us through this, I'm going to use the word, unprecedented crisis. Um, what are you working on at the moment, Emma? What's kind of keeping you busy over there? Well, we've been focused, as you know, for some time on a full employment agenda um, right back to the last election because these issues that have come so strongly to the fore during the crisis were prevalent and were causing you know, inequality, um, leading to loss of trust in government and to an inability to act on climate change long before the pandemic hit. So we've been about full employment for a while now and that means um, ensuring that the unemployment rates as low as possible, um, uh, not using pool of unemployed people to keep inflation low, but rather um, getting the economy functioning at a full employment level. Um, and that means creating jobs and strengthening the conditions around jobs. Uh, we're also focused particularly on some sectors of the economy, so um, young people, uh, older workers that are likely to uh, struggle to recover their work after this recession as well, um, women, people from low income and culturally diverse backgrounds. 
Um, and we're also doing a lot of work, as you know, on employment services reform and the treatment of unemployed people and underemployed people by a pretty brutal system. Um, and then we're looking at things like, you know, how do we revitalise manufacturing? Where are the jobs for regional Australia? And how do we strengthen jobs and public services in, in the foundational economy, which is a, a, a relatively new concept um, from Europe that we, we are taking hold of here. Um, and it really refers to those jobs and services that underpin everything we do from sewage and electricity to healthcare and education. Um, so it's a pretty broad agenda at per capita, but we were focused on these issues before the crisis and the, and the pandemic's just made it all the more urgent um, that we keep doing that work, I think. Thanks, Emma. Great, great having you back on the, um, the show and we'll catch you again soon. Always good to talk to you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Uh, Emma Dawson, uh, Exec Director at Per Capita. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.